Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Thank you and um, good evening. My name is Benjamin Zephaniah. And um, <laughs> I haven't been in these parts for a long time, but um, I dropped in here th- this evening to introduce a very, very special person. I remember when I first heard the words of our guest, I actually couldn't read and write. And I thought, I've got to go and learn to read and write <laughs> so I can read the, the words of this very important person. Dr. Maya Angelou's extraordinary life began in St. Louis, Missouri in 1928. Much of her childhood was spent in a self-imposed silence, but she read as much as she could and she listened very carefully to the words of other people. She defies categorizing. Poet, author, actress, humanitarian, civil rights activist. She's been a friend of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. I also know that she's a friend of um, Mr. Nelson Mandela. And she's the second poet to ever perform at a presidential inauguration. I think the guy's name was Bill Clinton. You may have heard of him. It was 1993. (laughs) She's perhaps best known for her autobiographies, from the first volume, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, to her sixth and final volume, A Song Flung Up to Heaven. She once said, all my work is meant to say, you may encounter defeats, but you must never be defeated. Above all, she is the kind of person who brings people together. Ladies and gentlemen, people of the earth, (laughs) please join me in welcoming on stage the phenomenon who is Dr. Maya Angelou. Imagine that. That song, that shred of a 19th century gospel song, was inspired by a statement in Genesis. The statement is, rain persisted so unrelentingly, the people thought it would never cease. 
And so God, to put the people at ease, put a rainbow in the sky. That's in, the, in Genesis. In the 19th century, some African-American poet, lyricist, probably a woman, I'm not sure about that, <laughs> said, said, wait a minute. We know that suns and moons and stars and novi and comets and so forth, rainbows, are always in the firmament. But uh, clouds can so lower and lower that the viewer cannot see that illumination. So it's best if we say God put the rainbow in the clouds themselves, right in the clouds. So at the worst of times, in the meanest, the bleakest, the most miserable of times, there's a possibility of seeing hope. When it looked like the sun wasn't shining anymore, God put a rainbow in the clouds. I suggest that poetry is a rainbow in the clouds. I know it has been for me. And I believe it has been for African Americans and maybe for three or four or 5,000 other races and groups and lumps of people. I know that the first Africans were brought to what was to become the United States in 1619. Now, <clears throat> that was one year before the Mayflower docked, even left Plymouth. Never mind. <laughs> so, indeed, uh, how did the people survive? I suggest poetry, poesy reading and writing, the very idea that people could define themselves, define their pain and their pleasure, their rapture and their despair in some words, and define themselves so well that other people could see and say, mm, that's, that's, mm, I understand. Oh, that's how you feel, is it? One of the most poignant and powerful songs in the African-American diaspora, and the African diaspora as it deals with the African-American, is sometimes I feel like a motherless child. An amazing statement. And so whether it's sung by African-Americans or by people in new or old Delhi or in Tenement Square, or Trafalgar Square, if it's sung in Durham or Durban, it's a human experience. And human beings understand that. This is who we are. We can actually say who we are in poetry. And so I would just say that, uh, you know, the first Africans were there and, and in the U.S., and so we wrote poetry, and, and today we are upwards of 50 million, and that's a conservative estimate. I know people who swear there are more than 50 million black people in the Baptist church. <laughs> they're, they're not even counting backsliders and AME and CME and the three black atheists in the world. So, I mean, <laughs> at some point, you have to wonder, how do the people survive?
I suggest the poetry, the poesie. You know, when a number of non-black people write about black people in romance, because they are so erroneously informed, they would have us believe that white people make love, and black, brown, beige, red, and yellow people just have sex. (laughs) They also think they have sex frequently and always successfully. (laughs) Not. But you can look in the poetry and see and hear romance. Here's a shred from a 19th century folk song in which a black man spoke about the woman he loved. He said, the woman I love is fat and chocolate to the bone. (laughs) And every time she shakes, some skinny woman loses her home. (laughs) I mean, I mean, you need to have that. Especially when a larger and more powerful society is telling you, you know, you're very nice, but this doesn't come off. And your hair, I mean, ooh, ah. And I hold out here in the back. you (laughs) You need somebody to say, not only is it all right, it's magnificent. There's a shred again, a 19th century folk song. Uh, Mr. W.C. Handy put this, a sh- this shred into his 20th century blues. The black woman said, he's blacker than midnight, teeth like flags of truce. He's the finest thing in the whole St. Louis. <laughs> they say the blacker the berry. Mm-hmm. 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 And sweeter is the juice. Mm-hmm. Now that's romantic poetry. <laughs> that's exactly it. So I thought coming to to Hay again, and I appreciate that you invited me. Uh, coming to see Peter Florence again. And I appreciate that he invited me. I had some meetings yesterday with some people from book clubs, some readers, and I appreciate that they invited me. But I've been treated so well at Hay. I want you to know, had I not been invited, I'd have come. You know, I'm just just showing you that I have the courtesy. I thank you. I would have been the tall black woman outside with a picket sign (laughs) saying they didn't invite me. (laughs) So I thought, I thought and thought, what would I do this time? And I decided love poetry. Um... And love, I mean agape love, romantic love, erotic love, familial love, and certainly self-love. I think um, 
we don't take enough time to talk about romance. And I'm sorry to say, the children are made smaller and weaker and more vulnerable because we don't talk about romance. And we ought to. We are a loving group, human beings. I mean, here we are, a group, according to certain scientists, meant to crawl through slimy swamps. We decided to, to stand up to oppose the gravity, build, grow these opposing thumbs, and had the unmitigated gall to remain standing. Here we are, a, group, a carnivorous group which has decided not only not to eat our brothers and sisters, who may be delicious, but in a... <laughs> to go farther than that to respect them to accord them some rights and even to love them whatever that mystery is here we are full of romance full of the idea of courtesy and respect between each other and so somehow we decide, oh, don't, never mind, don't. You say, good morning. <laughs> Instead of really taking the time to say, good morning, how are you? Fine, thanks, and you pretty good. Why not? What has happened to us that we uh, lose our ideas of romance? Um, <clears throat> I'm going to use African-American poetry, some of my own but some of different friends and some from people who, who died before I was born, so I didn't get a chance to meet them. But, but their poetry um, makes me strong. Um, <clears throat> Paul Lawrence Dunbar probably is my favorite poet in the world. But then I'm fickle. And <clears throat> I, I mean, in two hours or next 20 minutes, I may choose somebody else, but <laughs> try not to remember that. Paul Lance Dunbar, who wrote in both standard English and in the English of the plantation, of the slave plantation, wrote a poem called A Negro Love Song. He put this lyric in a man's mouth, but the truth is this is a woman's poem. The refrain in the poem is, jump back, honey, jump back. The man purportedly said, seen my lady home last night, jump back, honey, jump back. <laughs> Held her hand and squeezed it tight, jump back, honey, jump back. I heard her sigh that little sigh, I saw that light gleam in her eye. I saw a smile go flitting by. I say, jump back, honey, jump back. Oh, the mockingbird was singing fine. Jump back, honey, jump back. And my heart was beating so that when I reached my lady's door, I just couldn't bear to go. I said, <laughs> so I put my arms around her waist. Jump back, honey, jump back. I raised her lips and took a taste. <laughs> jump back, honey, jump back. 
I said, love me, honey, do you love me true? You love me as well as I love you? And then she answered, of course I do, but jump back, baby. Um, James Weldon Johnson. Now, Mr. Dunbar wrote that poem in 1892. James Weldon Johnson, writing in 1910, wrote, The glory of the day was in her face. The beauty of the night was in her eyes. And over all her loveliness, the grace of morning blushing in the early skies. And in her voice the calling of the dove like music of a sweet melodious part and in her eyes the falling light of love and all the gentle virtues in her heart but it seems like to me that everything is wrong seems like to me the birds done lost their song seems like to me the days are twice as long since she went away it seemed like to me, I just can't help but sigh. Seemed like to me, my throat keeps getting dry. Seemed like to me, a tear stay in my eye since she went away. Now that beauteous day, that glorious dawn, the birds that whispered to their mates along, they're one with all the dead. Now that she is dead and gone. Oh, but the glory of the day was in her face, in her face. Paul Einstein. Now, oh, no, I'm just warming up, don't, I'm just getting warmed up. Um, I love the poet Marie Evans, Marie Evans, M-A-R-I. Um, and I was talking about her yesterday to a Welsh friend, and she said, oh, that's a good Welsh name. Well, yes, well, mm, no. She's African-American. <laughs> if you were waiting, if somebody said, and here comes Marie Evans, and she came out, you'd say, ah. <laughs> She's so lyrical, and I think the most lyrical poet writing in English in the U.S. today. But the, and this poem is not indicative of her lyricism, but her sense of humor. And again, I, I love to look at humor. As you can tell, I hope already, I love to laugh. I never trust people who don't laugh, <laughs> who tell me I'm serious and act as if they put airplane glue on the back of their hands and stuck them to their foreheads <laughs> and they walk around all oh, along. Oh, oh, oh. Well, I don't know. Boring, yes, I know that. <laughs> Ponderous, certainly. But if you're serious, you came here to make a difference. Make a difference. Lighten, be a rainbow in somebody's cloud. So laugh when you can. So here's Marie Evans, not in her usual lyricism, but just enough to, I hope, make you ask Virago, why don't you publish? Oh. I don't know if any Virago people are here. <laughs> On the front row. 
Mary Evans. She wrote, where have you gone? Why did you leave me? Where have you gone with your confident walk and your crooked smile? Are you aware that when you left with you went the sun, the moon, and what few stars there are? Where have you gone with your confident walk and your crooked smile? With my heart in one pocket and the rent money in the other. <laughs> Mary Evans. <laughs> Nikki Giovanni, another black lady poet, wrote, one of these days you're going to walk in this house and I'm going to be wearing that long African gown. And you, not noticing me at all, will say, the problem in this country, I will be taking that gown off. You will go on as you always do. What we need to do in the struggle, I will be unbuckling your belts and kissing your arm. You will continue not noticing me at all. I need to talk to the brothers. I have got to talk to the, what is this? <laughs> And then, knowing you, you will turn to me and say, Nikki, I think this is counter-revolutionary. <laughs> um, I write a lot of poems about men and women together, and about women in particular. Um, but I like to write that piece that will make me smile uh, because each one of us in this room has gone to bed one night or another with pain or fear or disappointment or grief or loss or terror, apprehension. And yet each one of us has awakened, made our ablutions, seen other human beings, and said, morning, how are you? Fine, thanks, and you. It's amazing. Amazing. That's who we really are. We rise. And so, when I start to write about women and men, um, and look at our spirit. In this most recent book, uh, I've talked about the human spirit. I didn't know how on earth. Don't worry about the baby, please. Um, this, she'll grow up or he'll grow up and say, you know, I was a, I was a nuisance when Maya Angelou. <laughs> and that'll be something to talk about, don't mind. Don't, please. I love to have the children in. Um, but in the, in the course of, of writing a song flung up to heaven, 
I, I didn't know how I was going to, how I was going to do it, because it had to do with Martin Luther King's murder and Malcolm the X's murder <clears throat> and a, a love affair, a great love affair of my life, really. <clears throat> when I thought, when we met, a hundred baby angels danced on the head of a pin. It ended, much to my dismay. How was I going to write about that, the Watts uprising? Save that. As I thought about it, I wrote about the human spirit. What, what we really can overcome how we can stumble, fumble, fall, and fail, and still amazingly rise. Rise. So that seemed to give me license. I clung to it, really, and without releasing. I clung to that part of the human spirit. And so I found it necessary many times to write about laughing, especially when it's hard to do, and about romantic love and even self-love. <clears throat> Some years ago, uh, I, I want to read you a, a nice piece, and I have to look in this book. Um, I went to a, a <clears throat> vegetarian restaurant. It's, I, I may be using the wrong phrase. I, I went to a place where they served vegetarian food. I made it, maybe it wasn't a restaurant. <clears throat> And I really wanted that day, I wanted some rice and vegetables. So I went in, this was 20 years ago, and I ordered the rice and vegetables. The woman took my order, and as she walked away, I was still smoking at the time. I didn't know, very few people really knew that smoking could kill you at the time. So I reached in my purse and got out a fresh package of cigarettes, unopened. The woman came back. She almost throttled me. She said, don't you dare. How can you? Oh, this is filthy. Oh, I get. So I said, wait, miss, please. Get yourself together. I mean, please. <laughs> you know, if you don't want people to smoke, say so. That's all. You should have some signs up here. She said, we thought anybody who would come into a health food diner <laughs> would already know you shouldn't smoke. I said, not necessarily. And I worked so hard to pry myself loose from my illiteracy that I like every chance I can find to see if I can read a word or two. <laughs> but nothing I said, there was nothing that would make her laugh. Or as a kid say, she wouldn't crack her face. <laughs> she wouldn't. So she, now mind you, I hadn't pulled that little string, you know, that little cellophane thing. The thing was completely closed. She said, you are risking everybody's life in the, I said, wait. 
Well, these people just started coming, didn't they? She said, no, these are regulars. They've been coming for years. I looked at the people there and I said, I wouldn't tell it. <laughs> and not looking any better than that? So I wrote a poem, a piece of doggerel, it may be, called Health Food Diner. I'm happy to tell you this. The American Meat Packers Association did not give me any money, but they, they published 200,000 copies of this. <clears throat> No sprouted wheat and soya shoots and Brussels in a cake. Carrot straw and spinach raw. Today, I need a steak. <laughs> Not thick brown rice and rice pilau and mushrooms creamed on toast, turnips mashed and parsnips hash. I'm dreaming of a roast. <laughs> Health food folks around the world are thinned by anxious zeal. They look for help in seafood kelp. I count on breaded veal. No smoking signs, raw mustard greens, zucchini by the ton, uncooked kale, and bodies frail are sure to make me run to loins of pork and chicken thighs and standing ribs so prime, pork chops brown and fresh ground round. I crave them all the time. Irish stews and boiled corned beef and hot dogs by the stores or any place that saves a space for smoking carnivores. <laughs> In the... Uh, of, I, I appreciated what the poet Ben said and, and um, his statement that I spent some years as a, as a mute. Um, <clears throat> when I was three and my brother four, five, we were sent from California to a little village in Arkansas about the size of this stage to my paternal grandmother and her other sibling, my Uncle Willie. Now, <clears throat> I think I told this the last time, but I'm going to tell it again. Uncle Willie was crippled. His whole right side was paralyzed. Mama thought he was, my grandmother, we called her Mama. Mama thought he was paralyzed because he'd fallen off a porch when he was a couple of years old. Of course, we found that he had some neurological malady and uh, his whole right side. The left side was huge because on that side of the family, we tend to be 6'2 and 6'5 and all that. Um, my Uncle Willie had huge hands. Now, they owned the only black-owned store in the town of Stamps. And so my grandmother and Uncle Willie needed me and my brothers to help in the store. Uncle Willie was crippled. 
My grandmother was old. She was probably 50. <laughs> so they needed us to work in the store. My grandmother started teaching us to read and write probably the same afternoon we arrived. And Uncle Willie taught me to do my times tables, the multiplication tables. <clears throat> he would grab me by my clothes in the back right here and stand me in front of a pot-bellied stove. And he'd say, now, sister, I want you to do your threeses. Sister, do your fiveses. Do your nineses. I learned my multiplication tables exquisitely. I mean, even now, 70 years after, I can be awakened in the middle of the night after copious libation and loud revelry <laughs> and ask, do your trousers. <laughs> I was so sure somehow that if I didn't learn, Uncle Willie would open that pot-bellied stove with fire in it, throw me in it, and still manage to close the stove. I found out he was so tender-hearted, he wouldn't allow a moth or a spider to be killed in the store. You had to take whatever insect, take it outside, and let it go. Well, <clears throat> I'm sorry to say my Uncle Willie died. And I went down to Arkansas to see about affairs. I stopped in Little Rock. I was met by one of America's great treasures, uh, Miss Daisy Bates. <clears throat> she died last year, Miss Bates. But Miss Bates met me at the airport. She said, girl, I don't have to tell you she's black, right? She said, girl, so listen, I know you're staying overnight in Little Rock. Okay. <clears throat> There's somebody dying to meet you, and uh, I want to bring him to your hotel. I said, okay. She brought about 30 people to the hotel, but she brought this black man who was really... <laughs> I said, how do you do? He said, I don't want to shake your hand. I want to hug you. I said, I sure appreciate it. <laughs> he gave me a wonderful hug. He said, now you're down here in Arkansas because Willie has died. My jaw fell to my chin that this elegant man way up north in Little Rock would even know of my Uncle Willie. Uncle Willie was so ashamed of his condition, he wouldn't even go to Louisville, Arkansas, which was five miles from Stamps and the county seat. And this man in a three-piece suit I mean, he said, the state of Arkansas has lost a great man losing Willie. I asked him, Uncle Willie? <laughs> he said, the United States. I asked him, W.M. Johnson? He said, the world. I said, let me sit down. <laughs> he said, uh, in the 20s, I was the only child of a blind mother. Your Uncle Willie gave me a job in your store paid me 10 cents a week, made me love to learn. He taught me my times tables. <laughs> I asked him, how did he do it? He said, he used to grab me right here. <laughs> he said, because of him, I'm who I am today. You want to know? I said, yes, sir. He said, I'm mayor 
of Little Rock, Arkansas. First black man in the South. I looked at Willie. So I wrote a song, which is sung by Miss Roberta Flack. Then I wrote it as a poem, and then I wrote the music. And it just shows me how each one of us has the possibility, the license, the permission, the responsibility of being rainbows in the clouds. Willie was a man without fame. Hardly anybody knew his name. Crippled and limping and always walking lame. He said, I keep on moving and moving just the same. Solitude was the climate in his head. Emptiness was the partner in his bed. Pain echoed in the steps of his tread. He said, but I keep on following where the leaders led. I will cry and I will die. But my spirit is the soul of every spring. Look for me and you will see that I'm present in the songs that children sing. People called him uncle, boy, and hey. Said you can't live through this another day. And then they waited to hear what he would say. He said, I'm living in the games that children play. You may enter my sleep and people my dreams and threaten my early morning's ease, but I keep coming. I'm following, I'm laughing, I'm crying. I'm certain as a summer breeze. Look for me, ask for me. My spirit is a surge of open seas. Call for me, call upon me. I'm the rustle in the autumn leaves. When the sun rises, I am the time. When the children live and laugh and learn and love, I am the rhyme. Just call me Cripple Willie. Mm. Mm. One more self-love poem. Well, two or three more, really. <clears throat> um, of mine. I wrote a poem about men and women working together because to me that is healthy. Um, I, alas, I heard it sung. I was looking for it, but I think I have it. it the lyric is, there ain't no pay beneath the sun as sweet as rest when a job's well done. I was born to work up to my grave, but I was not born to be a slave. One more round and heave it down. One more round and heave it down. Papa drove steel. Mama stood guard. I never heard them holler because the work was hard. They were born to work up to their graves, but they were not born to be worked out slaves. One more round and heave it down. One more round, and heave it down. 
Brothers and sisters know the daily grind. It was not labor made them lose their mind. Okay, so when I heard it sung by professional singers, I heard, there ain't no pay beneath the sun. Sweet as rest when the job's well done. I was born to work. Yo! I had written a man's work song. <laughs> I mean, I simply put women in the lyric. Brothers and sisters know the daily grind. Was not labor me. What? Yo! Huh? <laughs> I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> now, um, I know that men may work from sun to sun, but I also know that women's work is never done. <laughs> so I decided, let me see if I can write a woman's work song. So I wrote, I've got the children to tend, the clothes to mend, the food to shop, then the paper to dry, the coming to feed, I got garden to weed, I got the shirts to press, the tops to dress, clean up this hut, then see about the sick, then the cotton to pitch. Shine on me, sunshine. <laughs> rain on me, rain. Fall softly, dew drops and cool my brow again. Storm blow me from here with your fiercest wind. Let me float across the sky till I can rest again because I've got to see about those people's pool. No, I got to get to the school. Wait, I got to visit the jail. No, no, I got to pick up the mail. Wait, I got the children to tend, clothes to mend, the food to shop, the floor to mop. I got the, the chicken to fry, the baby to dry. I got to come feed. Got to try to read. Got to read. Well, I think that uh, when I look at the, the strength and power of poetry, I think of what it meant to me. Uh, a few years ago, I came to uh, Britain to do a seminal piece for BBC, a documentary on rabbi dance. I was apprehensive. I love Burns, and I teach Burns and Paul Lawrence Dunbar together because I believe both those men, although they lived 100 years apart, and one was black and one was white and that, but they both reached right into their people's mouths and took their anguish and their laughter and their insouciance and their love and just put it right down on the page. So um, I was apprehensive. With the, I know how the Scots feel so possessive of Rabbi Burns. And well, they should. But uh, the poetry belongs to all of us all the time. And so I went to Asher. I went to Scotland. <clears throat> and uh, I met in, uh, 
in, Robert, in Burns's old pub, I met three men and two women. And of course, two women would never have been invited, never, ever. But we were then three women there, even it up. And so there was a bottle of scotch, of whiskey, on the table and six glasses. It hadn't been opened. No one offered me a smidgen. And I, I drink starch. <laughs> so the people were sitting with their body behavior told you everything. You know how people sit in front of you and cross their legs this way? And look at you and you think, ooh, ooh. So they had done that. So I said, gentlemen and ladies, I did not come here to tell you who Robert Burns was, but I came here to tell you what he meant to me. A poor black girl who was a mute in Arkansas uh, all those years ago. When I translated Burns, to my satisfaction, I knew he had written for me. And when I, under, when I comprehended, really internalized, you see young Berkey kind of lad, what struts and preens and all that? Those thousands worship at his word. He's a bit of coof, all that. He's a ribbon, a star, and all that. A man's a man for all that. The, the man who really held the scotch in thief, slid it across the table. <laughs> slid me a glass. I said, hello. <laughs> the truth is, as I have written for all of us, I presume, I assume, I'm certain that uh, the Welsh poets and musicians have written and sung for me. I am certain of it. And I will not have my life narrowed down because of someone else's ignorance and at someone else's whim. I know that Shakespeare wrote for me without any chance of knowing what I would look like 400 years later or how much I would need him. I was raped as a child and I couldn't believe I was about 10 when I read the sonnet. And I thought, well, he's probably Shakespeare. They keep him to themselves, but he's probably a black girl <laughs> in the South. <laughs> when you consider uh, the, the sonnet, when in disgrace with fortune, and men's eyes, I, all alone, bemoan my outcast state and trouble a deaf heaven with my bootless cries and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like the one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed. I'm desiring this man's art and that man's scope and with what I most enjoy, contented least. 
That was exactly what I felt. So whether it was the poetry of Shakespeare or the poetry of Burns, I thought it belonged to me. And it did. And it does. Whether it's Rabindranath Tagore, it belongs to me. And I take it. I just take it. I'm very glad they wrote it. And I'm glad I can read. And I just take it. I send them a little thanks. <laughs> they don't have any agents around. Huh? Thank you. <laughs> I um, say all that to say I hope that um, there are teachers here. I hope that you will encourage your students to read the African-American poetry. Encourage them, please, to read Derek Wolcott, the Caribbean poetry, and to read Garcia Lorca. Encourage them so that they will know, ah, ah, then uh, you mean to say that we really are that seminal? Really? Uh, so let me just read this little poem. I note, <clears throat> I note the obvious differences in the human family. Some of us are serious. Some thrive on comedy. Some declare their lives are lived as true profundity while others claim no, uh, they are living the real reality. The variety of our skin tones can confuse, bemuse, delight. We are brown and pink and beige and purple. We are tan and blue and white. I've sailed upon the seven seas and stopped in every land. I've seen the wonders of the world, but not yet one common man. I know 10,000 women called Jane, and Mary Jane, but I've not seen any two who really were the same. Mirror twins are different, although their features jibe, and lovers think quite different thoughts while lying side by side. We love and lose in China. We weep on England's moors. We laugh and moan in Guinea and thrive on Spanish shores. We seek success in Finland, are born and die in Maine. In minor ways we differ, in major we're the same. I note the obvious differences between each sort and type, but we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. I want to read you two poems. Uh, one after the uh, after Mr. Clinton was inaugurated, um, and I had written that poem on the pulse of morning. 
the uh, United Nations asked me to write a poem for all of us in honor of the 50th um, year celebration of the founding of United Nations. It's amazing how life is. When United Nations was, was founded, I had, was in San Francisco. I was 16 years old. I was pregnant. I was not married. And I was still in school and hiding the pregnancy so that I could finish high school. Um, I, I had a penchant for languages. I was very, I've been very blessed. I've later gone on to speak lots of them, and I teach in a few. But I read that simultaneous translators were being paid unheard of amounts of money, like $120 a week, unheard of. And I would go down to the Civic Center where the building, uh, where the, the United Nations, in the building where they were meeting, and I would watch Mrs. Eleanor Roosevelt go into the building with her very good friend, Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune, the black lady who was counsel to presidents. And I would watch the Asian women go in, in obi and kimono, and the Asian women in sari. And I would watch, oh, oh, oh I thought, I cried, I cried copiously, buckets. Though, you know, if I wasn't black and six foot tall and pregnant <laughs> and unmarried and illiterate for the most part, untrained, I could go right in there. <laughs> well, all those years later, I was invited to go in there. And I wrote a poem for us all. And I'm going to ask Peter Florence in the next, before this festival is over, to make some copies and just put them out on tables. It's called A Brave and Startling Truth. We, this people, on a small and lonely planet, traveling through casual space, past aloof stars, across the way of indifferent suns, to a destination where all signs tell us it is possible and imperative that we learn a brave and startling truth. And when we come to it, to the day of peacemaking, when we release our fingers from fists of hostility, when the curtain falls on the minstrel show of hate and faces sooted with scorn are scrubbed clean, when battlefields and coliseum no longer rake our unique and particular sons and daughters up from the bloody grass, 
when the rapacious storming of the churches, the screaming racket in the temples have ceased, when pennants are waving gaily, when the banners of the world tremble stoutly in a good clean breeze, when we come to it, when we let, let the rifles fall from our shoulders and our children can dress their dolls in flags of truce, when landmines of death have been removed and the aged can walk into their evenings of peace, when religious ritual is not perfumed by the incense of burning flesh and childhood dreams are not kicked awake by nightmares of sexual abuse, when we come to it, then we will confess that not the pyramids with their stones set in mysterious perfection, nor the gardens of Babylon hanging as eternal beauty in our collective memory, not the Grand Canyon kindled into delicious color by western sunsets, nor the Danube flowing its blue soul into Europe, not the sacred peak of Mount Fuji stretching to the rising sun, neither Father Amazon nor Mother Mississippi, who without favor nurture all creatures in their depths and on their shores. Those are not the only wonders of the world. When we come to it, we this people, on this minuscule globe, who reach daily for the bomb, the blade, and the dagger, yet who petition in the dark for tokens of peace. We, this people, on this moat of matter, in whose mouths abide cankerous words which challenge our existence, yet out of those same mouths can come songs of such exquisite sweetness that the heart falters in its labor and the body is quieted into awe. We, this people, whose hands can strike with such abandon that in a twinkling life is sapped from the living, yet those same hands can touch with such healing, irresistible tenderness that the haughty neck is happy to bow and the proud back is glad to bend. Out of such chaos, of such contradiction, we learn we are neither devils nor divines. When we come to it, we, this people, on this wayward, floating body, created on this earth, of this earth, have the power to fashion for this earth a climate where every man and every woman can live freely without sanctimonious piety, without crippling fear. When we come to it, we must confess that we are the possible. We are the miraculous. We are the true wonder of this world. That is when and only when we come to it. All right, this last poem is, uh, is for my grandmother and for your grandmother and for your grandfather. Um, my grandmother was the paternal grandmother. I'd love you to see her.
which is Korean, Irish, Welsh, <laughs> Japanese, Nigerian. She's grandma. Okay. Mama could sing. She was mother of the church. She would go into the church on Sunday, sit in the mother of the church pew. She didn't, the preacher was up there, and my grandmother wouldn't look at him. She would look at me over in the children's pew. <laughs> Every Sunday, I stayed with her 10 years, save for one disastrous few months. But Mama, every Sunday, would be called upon by the preacher. The preacher would say, and uh, now we will be privileged with a song from Sister Henderson. And every Sunday for 10 years, my grandmother would say, me? When you're young, no one can embarrass you in public as much as an adult to whom you're related, right? Guy. I would just think, Mama, get up and sing. Everybody knows you're going to sing. They even know what. She's saying the same song for 10 years. And the kids would just be slipping off the bench. Your grandma doing it again. She's doing it. Yeah, she is doing it again. Oh, my God. But finally, she looked all up like, what can I possibly <laughs> Finally, she would stand. All the women could sing, folks. That at least once a month, some woman in the church would hear Mama sing and get happy and just stand up and take her purse and wind it up <laughs> and throw the whole purse at the preacher. <laughs> but now at home, Mama wouldn't. But she didn't sing enough for me. So I had a tablet, a five-cent tablet, and she would take a pocket knife and make a groove in a number two pencil, tie one end of a piece of twine in that groove and the other piece into the spindle of the tablet. And that's how I communicated for years. So... I would want her to sing, so I would write, Mama, please sing. She'd put on her spectacles. Oh, sister, go on, you know Mama can't sing. But if I left her, let her alone, if I didn't bother her, she would sing, I shall not, I shall not be removed. I shall not, I shall not be removed. I would write, Mama, it is not removed. <laughs> so yes, Sister Mama, no. Just like a tree that's planted by the water, oh, I shall not be removed. <laughs> she lay skin down on the moist dirt the canebrake rustling with the whispers of leaves and the loud longing of hounds and the ransack of hunters crackling the near branches. She muttered, lifting her head a nod toward freedom, I shall not, I shall not be moved. She gathered her babies, their tears slick as oil on black faces, young eyes canvassing mornings of madness. Mama, is Master going to sell you from us tomorrow? Yes, 
unless you keep walking more and talking less. Yes, unless the keeper of our lives releases me from all commandments, yours never mind to live will be executed upon the killing floor of innocence unless you match my heart and words. Say with me, I shall not be moved. In Virginia tobacco fields, leaning into the curve of pianos along Arkansas roads, in the red hills of Georgia, into the palms of her chained hands, she cried against calamity. You have tried to destroy me, and although I perish daily, I shall not be removed. Her universe, summarized into one black body falling finally from the tree to her feet, made her cry each time in a new voice, all my past hastens to defeat. Strangers claim the glory of my love. Iniquity has bound me to his bed. Yet I must not be moved. She heard the names, swirling ribbons in the winds of history. Nigger, heifer, mammy, property, creature, ape, baboon, whore, hot tail, thing, it. She said, my description cannot fit your tongue. For I have a way of being in this world, and I shall not be moved. Few angels stretch protecting wings above the heads of her children, fluttering and urging the winds of reason into the confusion of their lives. They sprouted like young weeds. She could not shield their growth from the grinding blades of ignorance, nor shape them into symbolic topiaries. She sent them away underground, overland, in coaches, and barefoot. She said, when you learn, teach. When you get, give. As for me, I shall not be moved. She stood in mid-ocean, seeking dry land. She searched for God's face. Assured she placed her fire of service upon the altar. And although clothed in the finery of faith, when she appeared at the temple door, no sign welcomed black grandmothers enter here. Into the wickedness she said, no one, no nor no one million ones, dare deny me God. I go forth alone and stand as 10,000. The divine upon my right impels me to pull forever at the latch of freedom's gate. The Holy Spirit upon my left leads my feet without ceasing into the camp of the righteous, into the tents of the free. Today she stands before the abortion clinic, confounded by her lack of choice, in welfare lines, reduced to the pity of handouts, ordained in pulpits, shielded by the mystery, in operating rooms, husbanding life, in choir lofts, holding God in her throat, on lonely street corners hawking her body, in classrooms loving children into understanding. Centered on her world stage, she sings to her loves and beloveds, to her foes and detractors, however I am perceived and deceived, however my ignorance and conceits, lay aside your fears that I will be undone. For I shall not, I shall not be moved. 
I shall not, I shall not be moved just like a tree that's planted by the water. Oh, I shall not be when it looked like the sun wasn't going to shine anymore. Each of us has the chance to become a rainbow in the clouds. Thank you.